Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. This week, spine number 47, My Bloody Valentine and the Slasher Class of 1981. With at least 34 movies that we know of, dozens of dead Canadians, a boatload of bare breasts, prowlers, miners, sorority girls, pervy chemistry teachers, inept policemen, inept doctors, blind Jennifer Jason Lee, Hector Elizondo's hairline, Jason Alexander's toupee, bloody birthday cakes, and Hollis. Jacob. Yes. It's Harry Warden! He's here! Everybody get the fuck out! another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, we've been gone for a little while, but we're back, baby, and we're back with a bunch of dead bodies. You know it. Any excuse for me to talk about slashers or us to talk about slashers, we will take it. And today, when we're recording this, is Valentine's Day. Yeah, this is our... There's Galentine's Day, but is there a bro Valentine's Day? I don't think so. I like, I feel like we should be watching RRR and like... Hard, hard st- Target. Yeah, it's yeah, drinking stouts together. Drinking Steel Reserve from the can. And um, instead, we're talking about what's possibly... And I'm going to say something a little controversial here. Maybe the best slasher movie of all time, 1981's My Bloody Valentine, which was one of 34 fucking movies we're about to cover because... Like, it was almost like the entire genre, or subgenre, I should say, uh, came out this year. This is when I think um, Hollywood caught up with what was going on. There were some some kind of like quick to hit Erwin Yablins, who, you know, did Halloween. You know, he went, um, and I think, I believe he also did uh, Terror Train, you know, uh, I'm sorry, he did Hell Knight. So he's making films in this subgenre already. He kind of was like trying to recreate the magic of Halloween. Obviously, Universal gobbled up um, Halloween 2 um, for, which also came out this year. So you have sequels, you also have Friday 13th Part 2. But I think Hollywood kind of realized this is here and they thought it was here to stay. Um, when I did my thesis on this, this was the year I kind of focused on because this was like the most in one year. And I think it may be wrong, but looking at variety, there was not one week where there wasn't at least one slasher on the top 20, like all year. Like it was just this like and for a weird, relatively new subgenre to have such a kind of toehold was was pretty amazing. There are what, 52 weeks in a year, right? Yeah. Which means there were probably 18 weeks where a new slasher wasn't released in 1981 and that's not counting stuff that like say if you lived in Times square yeah like shit from other years before was probably playing in between you know the release of something like halloween 2 or the fun house you know yes to where like next door they were playing you know probably the original print of like friday the Friday the 13th and then after it they were playing like just before dawn the next week you know yeah it was just it was packed and it's cool though because this was the peak and also the beginning of the end of the slasher because by 82 it really starts to like 
that initial phase, we talked about this in a previous episode, kind of starts to die out. Um, and what what kind of continued were the sequels. You know, so you had the Halloween sequels. Uh, we're two years, three years away at this point from Nightmare on Elm Street, which becomes another franchise. You know, Jason rejuvenates the slasher. Absolutely. And gives it more of a budget because they realize, you know, special effects is really where it's at, as, as also the... Um, Friday 13th uh, movies as well were going strong until the 90s. Like, they didn't even take a year off. But the, these kind of ones we're talking about, these original IP slashers kind of disappeared for a big chunk um, of this decade. And honestly, until Scream, you don't get a lot of original IP um, slashers popping out beyond the, the odd Italian or... You know, late 80s, there there are some late 80s ones. You also get weird, as we get into the 90s, you get these strange stabs, I mean, I guess pun intended, at new icons like Dr. Giggles. Yes. You know, with Larry Drake. They're trying. Or Cor- uh, Corbin Burnson doing The, the Dentist. The, yep. mm-hmm. the, that, that's a Brian Usner movie, right? I think I so, yeah. Um, and stuff like that to where, like, you could see they were trying to nail, like, what the next icon was going to be. And obviously that's Candyman in 1992. Um, he's really the big one from the early nineties that we get probably before Ghostface. But yeah, you're right. Like IP peters out once Jason takes Manhattan comes out and then Freddie's dead kind of really puts the nail in the coffin. New Line tries to bring it back with Jason Goes to Hell, but it just doesn't work out. And then you you kind of see a dead period until Wes Craven really brings it back with Scream. But back in 1981, like I made a whole list of the, the movies that we're going to cover, and I kind of broke them up into sub-sub-categories um, so that we could sort of talk about them in order, starting with My Bloody Valentine, which sits at the top of the first part of the list, which I just called the Stone Classics. So you have My Bloody Valentine, Halloween 2, Friday the 13th Part 2, Just Before Dawn, and Night Warning. Now, Night Warning, I'm qualifying as a secret handshake classic because we should have an entire episode devoted oh, yeah. to that batshit insane fucking movie a whole and season we, Terrell episode for sure and we did have a, a massive article on the site that you can still check uh, check out right now uh, from Pre- Preston Fossil is that he wrote like something like 6,000 yeah. fucking words about Night Warning his new book's coming out too his new book's coming out uh, Beast of 42nd Street mm-hmm. uh, but he wrote a really really great piece for us and that's a movie that I've admired for years and years and years ever since uh, frankly seeing it on 35mm for the first time at an exhumed screening and he showed it to me and I showed it to you and it's kind of hung around now on that Code Red Blu-ray which R.I.P. Bill Olson um, but it's like Let's talk about My Bloody Valentine, because I still think... Do you think it's controversial to say it might be the best slasher of all time? No, I don't think so, because what it does... I was taking notes on it today. I rewatched it right before we recorded, or this afternoon. Um, I've seen it many times. I wanted it to be fresh. And first of all, I think it it gets what a slasher is. Like Again, this is that time when like Hollywood kind of figured it out. The people writing it weren't just making a complete ripoff of Halloween. They were getting a budget behind it, but they were like, okay, we need a good, a good killer, a good franchise killer uh, with the minor. Um, this has some of the best characters, uh, an actual like really well thought out, like love triangle plot, 
many other people with backstories and like their connecting of like the virgin um, cocktail waitress and her relationship with Mike Hollis and his girlfriend, uh, Howard, the funny guy, Mabel and her like somewhat romantic kind of feelings towards the sheriff. Maybe like there's kind of a flirtation going on. He See, almost, it almost seems like the sheriff has like an unrequited love for Mabel, especially during the, the, scene where he discovers her body and everything and kind of lets out that pain groan is that it feels almost like a guy mourning his wife or at least the woman he always wanted to marry and never did. Well, um, to go along with the screening, I've been reading the novelization. Oh, uh, that's right. So um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Stop the Killer, I believe it's a website. They have their own press. They recently put out um, a new novelization based on the original screenplay, very similar, honestly, to what they did with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it was like you take this this movie and you like add a lot of context. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood makes sense. This one, I'm like, what are you doing? So it kind of makes sense, though, because these were the type of movies that like people actually, you know, collect now on eBay and everything were all of the novelizations of these trashy like slasher films, like you could find novelizations of shit like Final Exam or Graduation yep, Day. The Boogans. The Boogans was another one. And then, but there were also ones, and these are kind of the most coveted ones now, is that there was a whole series of like Halloween books that came out because this was big business back then. Friday 13th as well, and Freddy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. more of the teen kind of like spinoff things. But like this Fear Street type stuff. Exactly. Or, you know, because usually it was like the, the Friday 13th ones were some kid getting Jason's mask and being the killer kind of screaming style um but this one is like was written this year and it expands upon the world and it's funny because mabel is a big part of what they expand before she dies that oh wow. she was a beauty and she has slept with everybody in town and the sheriff a lot of other dudes like they really expand it there's a whole scene in this book so there's a scene in the movie when they're all in the showers after coming back from the mine right and there's this one joke that that axel makes to mike where he's like do you do anything with that thing besides hang it over your shoulder and burp it? He's talking about this giant dick, right? So a throwaway joke in the movie. It's four pages of explanation of how they're all jealous of Mike's giant penis. It's hilarious, but it's like, why else would you write a novelization of my bloody Valentine? Seriously. It's like literally every like little line in the movie is given like all this like backstory, even the opening kill, like is actually very, it's sad because you get to learn like who she was, like, that this guy had been following her. It's obviously, you know, spoiler alert, the killer, we find out who it is later, had been giving her roses leading up to ha- to um, Valentine's Day, invited her down to the mine, and kills her. Now, in the movie, it's just a girl in a bra getting killed to get that opening kill. It's one of the most kind of egregious examples of the opening kill in yeah. these slasher movies is that you're just like, why is this girl down here? This is fucking weird. And the kill's fucking awesome. And also, like, the animated title yes. card of My Bloody Valentine and the, the two hearts, like, bleeding. Yes. Going, coming straight out of her mouth and everything as she screams. Like, it's just a classic schlock movie move. It's, it's amazing. And they're really, like... There's a budget behind this movie, and it very famously, um, George Mahalka, the filmmaker, like they, they butchered it in the editing. So I believe they got an X rating when they first turned it in. I wanted um, to get into this a little label later. This was one of those movies that, like, when the when the slashers became big, and I don't even think we've really hit on this too much in all of the discussion we've had on the show about slasher movies, is that with 
the rise in revenue that they generated, there was a counteractive moral panic that oh, yeah. kind of went along with them. And the censors, the MPAA, they sided, of course, with the, the fucking moral majority. The, the and they were hacking and... these movies oh, to yeah. pieces. And My Bloody Valentine was one of the ones that legendarily had all of these amazing kills. But like the, the first run prints of it that Paramount put out butchered and just completely neutered to the point that most people wrote this this slasher off at first it was like oh it's cool it's super canadian the location's awesome it looks really cold the fucking minor suit is fucking awesome that the slasher wears but there's literally no blood in it like there's all cutaways it reminds me a lot of uh friday the 13th part 7 the yeah. john carl Bushler one where you watch it and you're like this movie should fucking rule a movie where jason takes on carrie white that should just kick so much ass and it did if they left all the fucking gore that Bushler did in. Instead, it's like every single kill is a cutaway. And My Bloody Valentine, the original release and the VHS release were that way too. And then wasn't it rumored for years that the footage was lost? Because they thought our, it was gone. Yeah, because in like a, a warehouse fire or like bad storage or something, which is always like the classic tale with this kind of film preservation stuff and lost footage. But, like, it wasn't until that one DVD release came yep. where they found, like, one negative or one extra print. Because even when you it watch... It wasn't cleaned up. No, because when you watch the, the Screen Factory Blu-ray now, like, the the inserts are very clear. Like, they're very scratchy. They're a little faded. But, like, you watch it and you're like, I'm just glad because the fucking gore. Like, if they had left this movie in, like, intact upon its initial release, I think... Right off the bat, it would be known as the best slasher movie of all time. Instead, it's been slowly reclaimed after the movie was restored and re-released. Yeah, I mean, it, I remember the first time I saw it was that DVD. No, no, I saw it on VHS in high school. Same. Um, that awesome Paramount, the, the same kind of design as the uh, Friday 13th ones. You had the full cover on the front and the back was the one image across the top with the writing below it and the white back, those Paramount VHSs. Like, I just remember them so clearly. Oh, my God, yeah. They're just I like, had all the the original eight-tape Friday run oh, where there were like, yeah. all the white spines. I love that shit, dude. And and this was like that. But I saw it then, and then I bought it. I was When I was first writing my thesis in grad school, I found there's a that DVD, and they had really the scratchy, a few scenes – and then finally when the Blu-ray came out, I got that. And I watched that today. And, like, it, it really does change the movie. Because, like, the movie is so mean. Like, it's so sweet. And it has, like, a lot of heart to, like, no pun intended, to the characters. But the kills are, like, brutal. Like, the murder of the girl in the shower room. Because her head, like, stuck on that spigot. is oh just, God. like. And her boyfriend finds her and is, like, blubbering and, like, literally crying. Which you don't usually see in slashers. Usually it's more, like, we got to run. But, like. You have men crying and like and like people are screaming and crying over their dead friends in a in a kind of real way. It just has a real punch to it. Well, because in a strange way, one of the things that makes this movie so good is that it's almost more of a melodrama with dead bodies in it as opposed to a slasher that has a little bit of melodrama. Like you get really invested in all the characters, like you were saying, their relationships and everything. But even like the hangout stuff in the yes. bar before the and junkyard, the, the junkyard stuff. And then also like the love triangle between TJ Axel 
and what's the girl's Sarah. name? Sarah. Yep. And then you get the soothsayer bartender who is essentially like your Ralph. I love that scene. One. He's so fucking good. And then he tells that whole backstory and the kid pops. I was like, fuck off. And it's, it's, it's so great. But at the same time, you watch it and you're like, this movie's completely preposterous. Like, that's the thing that I think is so fucking cool about it is that it's this melodrama where you love all these characters and they're then brutally dispatched to where you actually feel something terrible for them. But this is also a movie about a town that's really mad that they can't throw a Valentine's Day dance for grown-ass dudes who fucking work in a mine. Like, that's the hardest part is that it's almost like if you went to Pittsburgh and you were like... (laughs) Yo, when you're done with the Primanis, man, just come down here to the VFW To the Union Hall. Yeah, we're going to do the fucking Valentine's Day dance. Go Illers. And they'd be like, fuck you, and just pound another Iron City light. Well, yeah, I mean, I was saying the same thing today. There's that scene at the bar when they decide to throw the party at the mine. And it almost has the feeling of like a Mickey Rooney movie. They're like... And we're going to throw a party down at the mine. It's Porky's. And they're like, let's do it. It's like that really... Because they are like adults, like... Plus, when they're mid twenties, like it's probably the oldest group, like in the they're, script, yeah, in the script, oldest group of slasher victims of pretty much any that I've seen. It's all blue collar working folks. It's it's dudes who work in the mine. Yeah, their girlfriends are waitresses or hairdressers. Yeah. You have the sheriff who's in love with the faded town beauty. You have they go and do their laundry at the fucking laundromat, which results in one of the more gruesome yeah. scenes in the film, like. This is a movie about adults. It's not a bunch of teenagers going out to an abandoned campground to reopen it. It's not babysitters in suburbia talking about their boyfriends and sneaking them in to like smoke pot and shit. Like these are adults. These are adults who go to work, then go to the bar, pound a bunch of beer, which makes their investment in the town's fucking Valentine's Day dance that much funnier. But at the same time, the way that I've rationalized it is that it also seems like What's the name of the the town? Valentine Bluffs. Valentine Bluffs, right? So, like, it also makes me wonder, like, how cut off from the rest of society Valentine Bluffs is and that they just don't have anything to do. It's like I go and bartend at one of our restaurants for the group that I work for. I go and bartend at a place in a town that has, like, 4,500 people, and you you see, like— the same 50 people every weekend when I used to go out there and like their birthday parties where you threw at the bar or whatever, that became like the big event in town where the whole town would show up. So I almost wonder if it's something like that to where it's just kind of like, we're doing this for us because we don't have anything else to do. So you know what? We should get fired up about the Valentine's day dance and also tempt fate with Harry Warden coming back and pickaxing axing us all to death well off of that too that the whole i mean like you said the whole conceit is ridiculous too that first of all there's a town called valentine bluffs like it's, it's so, so cartoony it's so but in the, the best no- way possible well, you, know, you know what it feels like the whole thing's like a scooby-doo episode like it really has That's, yeah the feeling of a scooby-doo episode and 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 off of that what's i think one of the things that makes us just special slasher is that it is at once both a classic franchise masked killer that you believe is Harry Warden. And it's also a murder mystery slasher of who's one picking off the kids and the townsfolk. You kind of, it's like this kind of transition movie where you have, you know, with scream, you're like, okay, who's doing it? There's a sense of who's the killer from the beginning. Right. And this one, it's like, 
you think because you know that the audience has been trained to think, oh, we have a new Michael Myers. This is the new Jason Voorhees, or you know, the miner is going to be this killer. Harry Warden escaped. There's no reason to think that it's not him. It's actually a very similar uh, trick they play in uh, Girls Night Out, where you think it's the escape yeah. convict, but it's his sister. All these they started again. You are kind of learning that they're playing Mister X with with the kind of genre rules and with the audience expectations. But it's also what kind of denotes it as being a slasher as opposed to a pseudo giallo because one of the categories I have on our list here are the American slash Canadian giallos that followed in the wake of Dress to Kill because one of the people that we haven't really talked about in terms of like slasher movies is Brian De Palma where Brian De Palma made Dress to Kill which is essentially an American giallo like is more interested in again adults and style and like a whodunit mystery, straight razors, women in drag, sexy lingerie on Nancy Allen. Like if you watched that movie and you didn't tell me like that it was American and not Italian, I would just assume that it came from like an Umberto Lenzi or, you know, one of those guys who were working for like Medusa films and stuff. But like that movie was such a big hit that there's a chunk of movies that we're gonna talk about here, including Brian De Palma's blowout in 1981, which isn't a slasher, but opens with a straight up parody of yep. slashers with one of the greatest like steady cam tracking shots of all time. So like De Palma was ahead of the curve in that he, while people were basically accusing guys like Sean Cunningham of ripping off like Mario Bava films and like Bay of Blood. Like, De Palma was openly like, oh, no, I'm just going to make a giallo, but an American one. And then while everybody's chasing the dollar with, you know, this this slasher class of 1981, Brian De Palma comes out with fucking Blowout, which is basically laughing at them and being like, oh, I'm already past that, guys. Like, I'm just going to go back to my conspiracy theor- thrillers with John Travolta now. Yeah, this it, he I, I love that opening, too. Also, I would just love to see that whole slasher someday. Like, I would complete that. Like that, dude. Great... Maybe that's the movie we should program in April. For you guys who don't know, uh, in the off time between episodes, uh, Martin and I hosted our first secret handshake screening of Streets of Fire at uh, Captain Quackenbush's here in town. It was quite the success. Great, great turnout. Thirty yeah. plus people there. We had drink specials and everything, and it's going to be an ongoing thing. We're going to actually do True Lies. On the 26th of this month, they're going to be you know, usually about the last Sunday of every month. So yeah. you service industry folks can come out and drink with us too. And then in March, we're going to probably do Belly, we've discussed. Dude, I would be down to do fucking Dress to Kill on you know in a, as an april screening we have so much stuff lined up for you guys and it's gonna be so much fun it's gonna be yeah it's a it was a lot of fun i think we're gonna do some some really cool stuff some real outlandish shit but anyway back to my bloody valentine yeah um you know slashers are so they are a genre that's kind of hard to strictly define because they, it's a very much like it's very nebulous um subgenre we've talked about that before and as you know you obviously I did a great job of kind of like doing sub sub genres. Um, but for me, like a pure slasher, there's certain, there's certain things and it's usually fewer locations, one location, 
multiple people POV shots. POV being picked off one by one by a killer. The but, deaths are creative, where in Giallos, they're almost mostly functionary, unless you're watching a Dario Argento movie. Well, yeah, and, and exactly. And it's also, you think about like Giallos, it's like, what part does the cop play? Usually the cop There's is usually a, an investigator. The investigator is probably closer to the hero of the movie. Um, whereas in Slashers, they are usually like a Loomis type character who shows up later at the last minute or too late for the killing or the boyfriend usually swoops in or you have the final girl, the famed final girl after Jamie Lee Curtis. Exactly. And you know, that's why I think my bloody Valentine works as a strict slasher because while there are murders that lead up, the kids don't know about it. Our group of chill, a group of, you know, kids, but 20 somethings don't know about these deaths. They heard Mabel died of a heart attack. They're like, Oh, we want to have our party. So like they, don't have the information to know about that. And I've always thought that a true slasher, your final girl and your characters should not know about the deaths happening. Um, it should be a sense of like coming out of nowhere. They're getting picked off, picked off at one location until they're, they're whittled down to one or two people. And this film definitely does that. And it has, as you said, very creative kills, POV shots. When we usually know the killer too, like the killer's an iconic, yes, like a guy in a fucking hockey mask or in like my bloody Valentine's case, a minor mask. Like they're trying to evade and we know who the killer is. Now, sometimes, like you said, in my bloody Valentine, there's almost like a Scooby-Doo whodunit thing where in Giallo's, the mystery is like the key part. Who's actually doing this? Which brings me to one of my favorite movies from this year that I revisited. I never liked this movie before because I always thought it was too long, maybe too weird. And then this time, I, something really clicked with me uh, in it. And that's Happy Birthday to Me. What a the, weird the J. fucking Lee Thompson two-hour slasher opus. Like, this is from the guy who fucking made Guns of Navarone and then also became, like, one of Charles Bronson's, like, right-hand men and made, like, shit like Kinjite, Forbidden Subjects. Have you ever seen that fucking movie? I have not. Charles Bronson rapes a man with a dildo in it. Yeah, in an interrogation room. Jesus. Let that sink in for a second. But, like, so, like, J. Lee Thompson was kind of like Michael Winner. Like, he was one of those sturdy journeyman directors who turned in the product that usually the star, like in the case of like Bronson wanted. And in this case, the studio, because he was making this movie in Canada as well. And it's, it's almost like he's bored with making a slasher because like there are vehicular chases, there's comedy scenes, there's like a whole whodunit. A lot of switcheroos. The ending is fucking bananas loco. And then the kills are fucking awesome. And it was advertised as you'll see six of the most bizarre deaths yep. to ever grace the screen. And one of them was on the cover. The, the actual, shish kebab the in the sh face, yeah. Matt Craven. Yeah. Dude, half the cast of this and my bloody Valentine are all from Meatballs. Yeah. Alfred is spaz. Canada, baby. Hollis is his best friend from Meatballs. Matt Craven, also Meatballs. They're all over. And then I also watched Eyes of a Stranger which was from the Friday the 13th production team. Uh, it was written by Ron Kurz, uh, directed by a guy named Ken Wiederhorn, who made, like, Meatballs 2, now that you're bringing that one up, too. Ooh, yeah, one of our personal The, the best movie ever. Um, but that's a really strange one as well, because that's almost more of a giallo, and it follows, like, a rape killer as he, like, terrorizes a city and then is hunted down by like a TV newswoman who also is trying to protect like I think it's it's her cousin or like 
something who's played by Jennifer Jason Lee, who is blind. And one of the big twists in the movie is that we find out how she was blinded. And when it reveals itself, it's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> Dude, you've never seen this movie, right? I have not. It has Savini uh, gore effects. Ooh. It's fucking weird. Well, and speaking of Savini, to take a little bit of a left turn, if that's cool, um, one of a slasher I really like from this in terms of the kills is The Prowler. Um, I don't like that movie that much. I want to like it a lot, but I just find it kind of boring. It's it is brutally boring. I mean, every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, I forgot how fucking boring this is because it's not just this plot that soft focus like light they do for that movie that kind of like oh it looks fucking cool. It's gorgeous, but also kind of makes me tired. It has this like glowing kind of again soft focus like like very sunny look and but it's like kind of just like makes me just pass out um but Savini you know and this year he did the burning and this both I think this was a Connecticut when they shot it and we, eyes of a stranger oh yeah and Eyes of a stranger he was just really and ma- he does did he do Friday too no that's the one that he left behind to do the burning right correct yeah he did Friday one and then went to that because he there's a death one of my favorite slasher kills ever is in the prowler um, and the killer is dressed in this like World War II like fatigues. Um, and while this girl's in the shower and her boyfriend's getting undressed, he's sitting on the bed. The prowler comes up behind, jams a bayonet through the top of his head, out the bottom of his his uh, his chin. His chin. The prowler's or like his has, jaw. He's just like basically covering his mouth while the guy's screaming, and then his eyes pop open and they oh. go and they just go white. Yeah, it's really gross. and it's really disturbing. Like even telling him like that's a really fucked up kill, and then he kills her with a fucking pitchfork. Yeah, and it looks like through the glass, right? Through, uh, you through the glass, and she's completely naked. So I don't know how that like Savini did it, but it's like blood pouring out. Like there's some some of his best work he ever did, and one of my favorite killings. Of a slasher is in the Prowler uh, because he's wrestling with the final girl with a double barreled shotgun and it gets underneath his chin and Farley Granger's head just completely explodes like a pumpkin. Well, it's him redoing because the previous year he does Maniac for Bill Lustig and he has the great his own exploding head. Yeah. Joe Spinell jumps up on the, the the hood of that car and fucking blows fucking Savini's head off while he's making out with that one girl. There's also the movie, which we've covered in the past, too, um, Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, the one, the Romana Scavolino yeah. movie that's like half New York, half Florida, not very good at all. But that was Unpleasant. the one that advertised that Savini did work on it. He was like from the effects master of Friday the 13th and Dawn of the Dead. And like he, I think, sued to have his name taken off it because he claims that he didn't do any work on that at all. But like the point is more Savini was already like a brand name after fucking Dawn of the Dead, Friday the 13th and Maniac now. Well, and and to your point, too, about the advertising for um, Happy Birthday to me is like the the advertisers and the, and the studios really knew where their bread was buttered. It was like, we need to show the kills. And um, the one that really started that was Friday 13th part one. Cause like you don't see barely any kills in Halloween. Friday 13th was the one that was like really elaborate, like drawn out kills with amazing. And I remember the trailer for for part two, 
They literally show the all. They one. show all the deaths. I think they do that for one too. Isn't there a I, countdown I, trailer for I one? I think it was later. Like it was. A, it was like a re-edit, like a re-release, uh, or but definitely for part two. It was. Oh, like, I remember too. That's a great fucking trailer. Yeah, because you have that. You see, I think the one that grabbed everyone's attention, mine as a kid, was um, the wheelchair. I mean, you're like, oh my god, what the fuck? Do like, you talk about mean fucking spirited? That movie. And we've talked about it before. Um, that's one of my favorite slashers. Uh, oh, me too. As well. Um, and but again, yeah, so you're kind of realizing that Savini is the star, right? You're not because these aren't movies you have celebrities in. He became this like he became this like kind an of underground rock star. like cult hero. Yeah, especially after Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead was his big coming out party, you know. And then like he couldn't be stopped in the early eighties. Yeah, it's the birth of like the gorehound movement of of people like, oh, this is cool. There's movies like this, and when Fangoria comes out in seventy nine, too. Yep. So, like, that's a big thing, and Fangoria is treated almost like pornography, where it would be put in, like, you know, paper bags or those black, like, bags that porno would be put in. It would sit right next to, like, you know, fucking penthouse and shit behind the counter at your local gas station. I remember that, man. I used to get so scared even opening at the bookstore. I'd, like, sneak back there. My parents didn't want me looking at it. But, man, it made you so fucking excited to see whatever came out next. Oh, yeah. And... You told me offline you don't like night school, right? Because that's another one I I consider a pseudo giallo. I don't. It's that's a film though. It's it has a budget. Like it, it's it's definitely it looks fucking great. It looks it's Warner great. Brothers. I think the reason I don't like it is every time I watch it, I forget it's not a full slasher. And there's just a lot of like it is more giallo, like you said, of like a girl being stalked and the motorcycle helmet killer reminds me of. Andrea Bianchi's uh, strip nude for your killer. Well, or, or reminds me of uh, what have they done to your daughters or is another one. Welcome to spring break. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like that, that kind of also like that, which would come much later. Yeah. It's like 88 or yeah, 89 88 or 89. Yeah. Cause that's the Umberto Lindsay one. Yeah. It's uh, what they call it. Some nightmare beach is the other name right. for it. Um, but uh, yeah, nice school. Just, I always found it really boring. Um, because it, again, it is not. It's not a slasher. It is like, and it's also in a city too, which I think is harder to do slashers in. So I think you know, usually slashers do well in rural areas, small towns, you drive-ins, know, drive-ins. Yeah, yeah, they're junk programmers. Yeah, I mean, I literally have a whole block here that are just called the programmers, and it was stuff that would play there. Things that came out in 1981, The Prowler, I have as one. Uh, the Burning, I have as another. Uh, graduation day, the very strange javelin killer movie. Just watched with Christopher it this week. George. The editing in that film is bonkers. I almost got dizzy because, like, the it's opening. Like you're having a seizure. The opening scene. I'm like, oh, cool. This is just for the opening scene. It's going to be like a music video kind of thing. It is really jarring and horrible music. Like the 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 killer dude looks like he's 85 years old. He's that one to comes be close to being a pseudo giallo too. Oh, 100 percent. You know. Because it's very much the mystery of who's killing all the track athletes, right? Yeah. And then you also have one of your favorites, Final Exam, a movie I can't stand. They don't even bother to put a mask on the killer. He's just some schlubby douchebag with a knife. Like, what? Explain why you like this movie, because I think it sucks. No, um, so there's nostalgia mixed in with... Uh, it just be it has become a secret handshake between me and a couple friends. Um, so 
the first time I saw it, I was in grad school, and they brought a 35 millimeter print to the Plaza uh, Theater in Atlanta. Right. There was a great uh, the uh, Splatter Cinema um, group, and those guys have gone on to do really amazing stuff. Like one of them, my friend Luke, he works on Walking Dead and shit. Like they've all gone on to do some really cool stuff. But they were like, but my first like horror group that I was like regularly came to their events. And so we saw it in 35. They brought the guy um, who plays uh, the, pl- the pledge in his underwear. Um, and I remember he made a really inappropriate joke in front of the entire crowd. And like the hosts were like, just killed right. the vibe. The, the hosts were like, all right, we'll start the movie. And they just like ushered this guy off. It was fucking hilarious. And that's enough about the Jews. You know, it was like, he talked about like, I think one of the actors had like died and he made a joke about it. It was just like, and then it, we it, fucked it, his corpse. Yeah. It was just not good, but I really liked the movie, um, and then over the years, I uh, I showed it to a few friends who were just like, "Oh my god!" Like uh, specifically the character of Radish, he's you know this proto Randy played by uh, Joel S. Rice, who's also in Christine in a bit role. Um, right, he shows up as an extra. But the reason I like this movie, um, it represents to me. At once the bottom of the barrel of slashers. 100%. Um, but that even, like, from what I've heard about the history of making of this film, it's, you know, the Earl Ormsby uh, studios, and then basically saying, just do Halloween. We don't care. Like you said, make it a killer. It looks like fucking Anton Chigurh with a bowl cut. Um, so dopey looking. Yeah, just a, big, just a big goon. And they're like, just, they also wanted to... Um, shoot it so they could edit it for PG for TV because they realized that at worst they're going to do, they'll do like drive-ins. Well, and wasn't that Owensby's big thing mm-hmm. too? Cause he even made like a bunch of Christian movies and yep. stuff too, is that they were true programmers and that it was like, we'll have one cut that can play all the R rated late night drive-ins as like the second or third feature. And then we'll have another cut that we can sell to like local public access places so that you know they have the rights to it we make a little bit of money that way and then it can play on tv yeah yeah it was you could easily and even watching the the unedited rated r version on blu-ray like there's it's pg there's there's like no violence there's one boob like it's there's not a lot there's barely any cussing there Um, is a stage school shooting though which is so fucking weird and that's you know also we've talked before about like why Part of the reason we both like slashers is like, for, especially for me, before the killing start, it's like characters and hangout time. And like, I love this time period. I love early 80s. I love that kind of way the 70s barfed into the early 80s. You have a lot of flannel still, bad frizzy hair. We don't have the kind of like, you know, hip, uh, kind of colorful. A lot of flare 80s. jeans yeah, and bell bottoms. Yeah, it's still, it's still the 70s, you know. Um, and I like the characters. I love, I like Radish a lot. I think it's like Wild Man um, as the bully is like the laziest written character. Like you could his tell, name's literally Wild Man, and they they literally didn't even like put the letters on right on his fucking jersey. It's like they're all crooked. Like you can tell the costume designers like, oh shit. It's like on the front, which it wouldn't be there, and it's like off center, and it's like all these points of like laziness. If um, you didn't tell me it was like a student production, I would just assume that it is. Well, it's, and I don't think it's that bad. Mm. No, because, like, there are some slack. Like, for me, a student production is, like, Scream from 1981. Like, that looks like a bag of assholes. Shot like, by future uh, PM Entertainment founder Rick Pepin. Correct. Who would yeah. film the majority of those PM movies that, like, Joe Mary would, would churn out in the 90s that were all those kind of, like, 
DTV, what we know as DTV now, but they were like video store shelf stuffers where they would go out, film a movie for like two to four hundred grand, and then literally like cold call video stores and sell their own tapes to like places. They started as like City Lights Entertainment and then yep. morphed into PM Entertainment and had like Jeff Wincott movies, all the Wings Hauser movies. Um, Gary Gary Daniels. Yeah. We watched Rage that, that one awesome. night. That movie fucking rules. We should play one of those fucking Oh, that'd be movies. especially oh, that God. one. Well, but, the, the, sorry, go ahead. But it was just like, it's funny that it's still the lineage is there. It's like he goes from making junky, uh, junky slasher movie in the early 80s because isn't Woody Strode? Yeah. Like the ghost cowboy in that? Woody or like he just shows up. And then the what's his name? The uh, other guy from, from The Searchers. Right. The old dude. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember his name. But then he would go and he would make these junk action movies. That's another episode I want to do in the future. I really want to do a PM Entertainment thing, especially focusing on like the the run of movies that Wings Hauser wrote, directed, produced, starred in, and scored. <laughs> like shit. Like, um, uh, what is it? The Art of Dying, I want to say, where he goes after a, a ring of stuff like snuff porn filmmakers, that movie's fucking bonkers. <laughs> um, oh, but to scream, I mean, the, part of the problem with that film though is also they had no lights. Like, no. it's like prom night, certain scenes, you can't see it, like just pitch black. But, you know... You just hear the wind blowing over a dark screen, you're squinting like I Mr. Magoo trying to make anything out. there's going on. Because that's the one where the killer uses a scythe, too, yeah. right? Great, yeah, great, uh, great cover art. Um, but no, final exam for me has just become like kind of comfort food like I watch it all the time I put it on like on a Friday afternoon just with like, a beer while I'm like starting my weekend I don't even have to pay a lot of attention to it Naturally. Um, I have the original like record on in the in the plastic uh, I spent way too much on it um, it's like my bookings poster upstairs my original bookings poster now tell me this is it better or worse than the next movie on the programmers list which is hell night oh shit it's tied, um, right? I would go with tied. It's, it's tied because I think Hell Knight is a more effective horror movie. The, the kills are better because the kills are pretty much non-existent in Final Exam. But I like the characters more in Final Exam, and I have more of a just a personal attachment. Hell Knight, there's a lot that I really like about that movie. But Linda Blair's cleavage. Oh, oh, my God. It's also boring as fuck like it, it takes goes on forever so, it takes so long for anything to happen and like the sets for the like the inside of that um inside sets for the mansion are so dumb looking now the outside's amazing like those grounds they have like i also think andrew's a great killer as this like um like deformed like man child who basically has these giant capri he looks like the incredible hulk like his legs are you know going through the pants, he never got big enough pants for his size. I love his death um, at the end. Uh, the kills are good when they happen. And I love the kind of opening feels like that episode we watched of um, of uh, Tales from the Crypt with Will Wheaton. Of like daring, yeah. you know, the kind of the hell night, like daring them to go into the haunted house. But this is a, you know, hour and 40 minute version of that. From Tom Simone. Of Angel 3 fame, Ooh. Chatterbox fame, where the woman develops a talking vagina, and then a lot of gay porn in the 70s. He's one of the, the guys who came from like the gay porn scene and would direct like slasher movies, but he, he directed gay porn titles with titles like Hot Truckin', Bad Bad Boys, 
everything goes coming distractions <laughs> that's one of my favorite <laughs> titles but he he was one of the guys who actually jumped from that industry into like making legit exploitation movies too um now we can go to one of the truest programmers which is actually a pretty good fucking movie despite being pretty goofy but it was made for tv and that's dark night of the scarecrow i love this movie so much i just rewatched it not for the pod but just like I, in I, general i, I, just, I wanted to watch fun. it it Larry Drake doing Simple Jack. Oh, my God. Oh, and Charles Durning has never been more of a heel. He's great yeah. in this movie. He's a shithead. He, well, because you find out that it's like the kind of twist that like he's like he wants to kill Larry Drake the whole time because, oh, I don't like him. He, he shouldn't be with kids like that. You find out Charles Durning's the fucking molester. You're like, oh, yeah, he's trying like, to pin it on Lenny, man. Oh, man. But that movie's a lot of fun. But I mean, like that shows just kind of how popular slasher movies were at that point is that they were literally making them for TV. Well, and then the ultimate tribute to a genre is uh, a complete farce. So student bodies, all 1981. Do you like that movie? Not really. Cause it's very much like a Zaz airplane style kind of or like Kentucky fried movie kind of yeah, feel exactly. to it. But you know, I mean like I like the fact that it exists because it shows again, to your point about dark Knight scarecrow, like this genre was, was really bleeding into like, popular culture enough so much that people would get the jokes because this is like you know 15 years before scream and it's making a lot of jokes and references that scream will make in terms of these metatextual you know kind of criticisms well it's funny when you take that in league with the beginning of blowout is that you had making you'd made this point a couple of times when we've done a few slasher episodes now is that like this was a subgenre where you were watching them kind of write the rules in real time. And then the parody came along in real time as well, because it was easy to make fun of these very like concrete things that you've already outlined that defined what a slasher movie was. Like we were able stretching back to like 78 with Halloween and maybe even 72 with black Christmas. Right. Um, 74. 74. Yeah. Okay. But stretching all the way back to like 1974, like even that movie has a bunch of like the rules that are in it. Now that one's a little more yeah. Canadian giallo. That'd be 76. I'm sorry. I might have No, it's 74. Yeah. It's okay, seven, yeah. yeah, 74 is right. Um, but I mean, it's funny to watch then these filmmakers, the guys who made student bodies and then De Palma also like mock them like openly to, uh, that like admits like, we like this, but it's trash, you know, because De Palma, when I even say mocking with the beginning of blowout, like he's not doing it in a mean way. He's just acknowledging because he's a guy who very much loves sleaze, loves low art. Like that's what fucking body double is almost entirely about, like how much he loves that kind of low, that low brow sort of like cheap thrill cinema. So like he's not condescending to it, but at the same time he's, he's just chuckling and being like, this is all very deeply silly guys. What well, also like works its way into the plot of blowout that, you know, you have this character who feels like he's wasting his talents, right? He's yeah. Oh my God, I'm just fucking recording screams, you know, these horrible screams, this dumb fucking movie. that's no one's going to see. So, you know, the char- I didn't hire her for acting Jack. I hired her for her tits. <laughs> But then we also have, speaking of auteurs like De Palma, you actually have a couple entries in 81 from like big names. You have Wes Craven doing Deadly Blessing and then Toby Hooper doing The Fun House. Now, almost not a slasher. Of the two of them, 
the fun house I feel like qualifies much easier as a slasher. We're deadly blessing. Like we, when we were doing the research for this episode, we found uh, a vulture list that basically also identified like 1981 as this huge year and ranked all of the slashers from that year. But they threw on deadly blessing and another movie I want to talk about in a minute but we debated offline that we were like, is Deadly Blessing actually a slasher? It's almost more like just a Wes Craven, Hills Have Eyes style movie, but with Amish people. Yeah, no, I... Ernest I, Borgnine Amish. <laughs> he, I love his fucking beard in this movie. And Sharon Stone, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, very I, young Sharon Stone. Yeah. Incubus. I don't... Um, I agree with you. I don't think it's a slasher in the in the classical sense. It's also not very good. Yeah, it's not good. Um, and there are, again this is when slasher is used kind of um, haphazardly, you know, as a term. And this definitely feels like one of those films where it definitely like feels more in line as an auteur piece from early Craven of the kind of movies he made about people going to the wrong place. Hills have eyes style, Texas chainsaw massacre style of like, Oh, we shouldn't have taken that turn. We are not in Kansas anymore. That kind of mentality versus when it's also the collision of like, society with like some kind of outsider sect like stretching all the way back to like last house on the left is yeah. that you have this very manson-esque group of killers with krug and his his crew and then with hills have eyes it's you know these very civilized like educated people coming across these literal like cavemen who come rape and kill and eat them and then, but I mean, like, Deadly Blessing is essentially an extension of that, is that it's like, here's this sect of hyper-religious people who live by their own code and stuff, and will literally commit murder to, to like, protect their way of life, and they're going after, again, like, a, a group of, like... You know, poppy, early 80s, like mall crowd teenage girls. Yeah, it actually reminds me a lot of like some of the honest, the French extremity as well. Like Frontiers is the same plot. Exactly. Of like we, we stopped at the wrong hotel. We are now in this world of people with their rules. And, you know, they're, they're and in that film. It's, you know, Nazis who never quit their evil ways. Um, and this one has that kind of similar feel of a wrong turn kind of movie. I, can, I guess I would call that subgenre. Exactly. Almost. Because I, I don't consider Texas Chainsaw obviously a straight slasher either. You know, it's its own thing. Yeah. Even though many people do credit it and like Psycho as basically the ones that gave birth yeah. to the slasher as a whole. And then I have another movie under, I have a very small category called The Auteurs here, which had Deadly Blessing and then The Fun House. But I also had uh, an asterisk next to this one, and that's House by the Cemetery by Lucio Fulci. Technically comes from 1981. And I love that movie. It's fucking awesome, but I'm not sure if it actually came out in the States in 81. Oh, okay. And I think that's what we're going by. It might have played at Grindhouses by like the end of the year, but I think that was one of those Fulci titles that came later. I um and that's a really interesting movie because it is more it's so fucking gross. It's kind of a zombie movie. It's also like a Frankenstein a haunted house movie. Kind of, there's, there's ghost stuff, psychic psychic thing. There's there's um Bob. Oh sorry, the Bob. little kid named uh, Bob with Bob. the worst dubbed voice in Just, the history of Italian I'm, cinema or any other medium. I'm Facebook friends with that guy. I literally fa I found Bob on on this is early Facebook days. It goes. I'm like I wonder if he's on Facebook. I just and this is back in the day where it's just easy to find somebody. 
typed in his name. I just said, friendly, hey, I'm a big fan of House by Cemetery. He's just really a nice Italian dude. Doesn't act. He's like, oh, thanks for the nice note. Uh, thank you. <laughs> oh, he probably has someplace to be. Does your hair still look like that? <laughs> um, no, I, but this movie like is such a genre mash of like all these things. Well, it's a Lucio Fulci movie. That was yeah. one of the great things that he did is that, and also why, even though a lot of his movies might not necessarily be qualified as traditionally good they're never fucking boring hell no because there's either bats snakes murderers psychics (laughs) like black glove killers Dot with Donald Duck voices in the case of the New York Ripper. Oh, that fucked Haunted up. houses. Uh, d- just the worst. Fu- and in this case, like, you have Dr. Freudstein coming up out of the fucking basement. And just, like, that opening kill where the butcher knife goes through the back of that girl's skull and the fucking tip comes out of her mouth is, like, one of my favorite images in all of cinema. As fucked up as that is a thing to admit on air. It's also... One of my favorite uh, synth scores of the '80s. Oh, it's so good! I remember that because I the first time I saw this, my buddy Derek, we had one of those um, compilation like four horror movies from like Best Buy like DVD sets, and it was like eight dollars for like basically stuff that wasn't yeah like, public domain or whatever. And it's it like those old like grindhouse sets where you could get like forty movies in a box for twenty. And it was a, honestly like it was a great way for people pre-streaming to like see. Some really poor copies, but still copies of like pretty amazing, especially Italian horror. I saw pieces on there for the first time. Same set. Pieces and fucking House by Cemetery. It's sort of like the now that's what I call music for like (laughs) trash cinema. (laughs) But it was awesome, man. Well, and people were also like the people were talking about the 2B, the 2B ad uh, on the Super Bowl this week of like it. People thought their TV had been taken over because like it was like scrolling through the 2B page, but. I was hearing people kind of talk about how Tubi has an energy too of like it takes everything, so you can find some just weird obscura on there. You get to sift through it's some shit. It's almost the closest thing that streaming has to a true video store feel. S- seriously, where like you can type in any like name from like Lucio Fulci to like Steven Spielberg, and you might find something like the Sugarland Express. You might also find like the New York Ripper on there. Yeah, or just like or like a slasher from 1986 that you've never fucking heard of in a bad SD transfer, but still it's a way to see it. I think I watched a couple of those, uh, O'Brow and Carpenter films for me the too. kindred for that episode on Tubi. I mean, I watched, um, happy birthday to me was, was on there. Oh, I watched happy birthday to me on Tubi for yeah. this episode. Yeah. Too. So congratulations. Fucking great. Dude, that's a beautiful transfer. Like it's yeah. really pretty, but yeah, uh, House by the Cemetery is, like, one of my personal favorites of full cheese. Now, I also want to talk about another movie, though, uh, going back to the idea of, like, these lists, like the Vulture list and stuff, and movies that are included as slashers that might not necessarily be slashers. And that's The Fan with Michael Bean, Lauren Bacall, and fucking James Garner, directed by Ed Bianchi, who would go on to be a big HBO guy, like, directed a lot of Deadwood, directed a lot of The Wire. Yeah. Um, Dude, this movie, I didn't like it the first time I watched it. And then this time, it's another one like Happy Birthday to Me that kind of clicked in my head. Um, It's almost like if all that jazz were, like, written and directed by Paul Schrader and, like, Taxi Driver uh, or King of Comedy mode, you know? Like, it's fucking weird. Although Schrader didn't do King of Comedy. So maybe, like, pure Taxi Driver mode. It's like that outsider 
weird fanboy thing that Michael Bean plays. Lauren Bacall is like an aging kind of washed up actress on like her last Broadway show. And like he starts stalking her. But like so much attention is given in this movie to the rehearsals. And it straight up feels like Ed Bianchi's just doing a Bob Fosse, like all that jazz thing. It's a fucking weird movie. Also, not a slasher. Maybe a giallo because... Uh, Michael Bean's a, a, a straight razor killer, but even then there's no mystery element to it. It's very much like a God's loneliest man becomes a Travis Bickle type and mm. hunts down this actress. It's a fucked up movie. It's what I've actually never seen. And I skipped it. Cause like I read the synopsis and I also had heard and I was like, that doesn't seem slasher to me. And I wanted to kind of like focus my time on others, but I do want to see it eventually. I also love Michael Bean. So like, and James Garner's great in it because James Garner plays, um, her uh, ex-husband that they still, and like, a, again, a lot of screen time is given to Lauren Bacall and James Garner, like going for walks on the beach and talking about how they were young and in love together and stuff. And like, they have a lot of chemistry together. I mean, it's Lauren Bacall and fucking James Garner. Yeah. So like they could both have like, you know, chemistry with a, a horseshoe crab, but it's like, it's a, it's a really weird, interesting movie that I, I think I undervalued the first time around. Hell yeah. No, I'll definitely check it out. Um, but one, not a slasher. One we we kind of, we, I know we talked about it briefly, but like a film that I love from this year and also I, I do think fits in a slasher, but kind of also feels similar to a, a, a Craven movie is Just Before Dawn. Um, in Jeff Lieberman. Jeff right? Lieberman. This is fucking rules. This is one, and this one of those films like Near Dark that just like will become available for a bit, then goes away. It just like I don't know. There's been the, like six or seven different Blu-ray and yep. like DVD releases of it going all the way back to that old label that used to put some stuff out that was pretty good because like, I think they put out. Speaking of Fulci. Uh, his zombie um, shriek show. Yeah. They had that yellow box. I, re- I remember that one and it had a, that great cover. That really creepy the cover. The man with the giant knife just standing above that waterfall. It's it's amazing. Well, this movie, like, I think is genuinely scary. Um, I think that the killers, these twin um, mountain men. Damn spoiler, dog. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> we're talking, you know, um, but there's some moments that have a feeling of Texas Chainsaw of just that kind of nightmare world. Or deliverance. Or, yeah, it's like we stepped in, the, we shouldn't have left the path kind of feel. Also a great George Kennedy role with his horse. Oh, yeah, that's right. His horse's name is Lucille, like the woman in Cool Hand Luke. I, I just rewatched it. I'm like, oh my God, it's such a cool little touch. And he's just like, George Kennedy just brings the class in everything he fucking does from the best to worst movies. Um, him being the kind of Loomis character on a horse kind of coming to save. He's so great. And speaking of De Palma, one of his main boys is in that too. Greg Henry Dude, plays one of the main guys in it. The only time I've ever seen Greg Henry look somewhat young with a, sort of full head of hair almost it's kind of a wisp yeah. you know over the top but there's some great sequences in this there's that great um uh the wire across the the kind of chasm is really great um there's that reminds me of the the scene where john voight scales like the side of the cliff and deliverance a lot very much there's another film um i think it's shoot to kill oh yeah with sydney portier yeah there's fucking a, and tom berenger that movie fucking it's rules. so fucking Dude, good i fell across it during early covid i was just like going to a rabbit hole and i was just like what movie i, I found it it's like okay it was the guy who did the score i was like i like the score to lionheart what else did he do like what shoot to kill? And I watch shoot to kill and I called my dad. I'm like, so good. It's fucking great. Um, Berger. It kind of reminded me of that movie, um, a breed apart 
yeah. with uh, with Rucker Hauer and Powers Booth. Yeah, kind of similar thing of Mountain also Man. Also pretty good. Well, and another one that came later, and one of the few times I've actually liked Jared Leto in a film um, with Dennis Quaid <sighs> and Danny Glover. Switchback. Switchback I which love is that super movie. Fucking good movie. That's a tight, like, cool '90s thriller. That reminded me a lot of Shoot to Kill. Oh, I, lo- I love that. Uh, but but what just before Dawn seems to do everything right that Final Terror does wrong. Um, and I like a lot of Final Terror, but, like, that movie's a fucking mess. Well, that's why I'm kind of making fun of you for the spoiler thing, is I think the reveal of the twins is masterfully done in yeah. that, to where, like, every time I even watch it, even though I know it's coming, when he pulls that shot off, I'm like, oh, fuck, that's awesome. It's it's, it's so lo-fi, but just magically blocked. It's really, and then the, the dad, the guy who's, like, uh, the hunter, it's uh, fucking Mel from Summer Part from uh, Sleepaway Camp. Yeah, and from Midnight Midnight Express. But you know, playing another, he's like drinking whiskey in the fucking uh, in the fucking woods. But I love I love the setup in this movie. It's so simple, and it's really hard to like shoot night scenes on film in the woods. And like they make this film look so good. It's brutal. It's sad. Like it's a daytime slasher too. A, a lot, lot of, daytime. of it takes time in the or takes place in the sunlight, and also reminds me of another movie that would come later of uh, Don Coscarelli's Survival Quest is another one. I love that movie, dude. So fucking good. That movie, like, because you got uh, we well, got yeah, you got Lance Hendrickson is like yeah. the the trainer, and then everybody like young Catherine Keener. Yeah, it's just really yeah. solid. Like, it's when Coscarelli was kind of really figuring himself out and just churning out some of that genre stuff to, to really apply his, you know, again, another guy who's just a, a low-budget craftsperson and, and by any means necessary, we're going to get this fucking movie done, dude. Exactly. And then to kind of go back to the cultural ubiquity of, like, the slasher film, we also have two Aussie movies that come out this come out of kind of Ausploitation. One of them really fucking good, and that's um, Road Games with Stacey Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis, Richard Franklin, Richard Frank Franklin making it. And this is the movie that ends up getting him Psycho Two, correct? Yeah, to where he turns Psycho with the what many people credit as like the granddaddy of all slashers. He actually makes it into an eighty slasher. I didn't see that till like five, six years ago. I, it's so good. I put off the the series, the rest of the movies, because I was like, why even do a sequel? Don't touch it. You know, and Psycho is still a perfect, it's a, a masterpiece of all masterpieces. But like two does the thing. There's also like, there's this one shot in that movie of it's a matte painting from the perspective of the roof looking down as like Vera Miles is walking into the house. And it's like, they go all the way with the new toys they had of the eighties too, with the gore. While he's still very much a student of Hitchcock, because one of the, the big stories about Richard Franklin is that he was one of the guys when he was in college that was bringing, it was back when Hitchcock was disreputable, you know, and most people looked at his movies kind of like lowbrow trash and he was doing rep screenings. I believe he went to USC. Okay. um, And he actually brought Hitchcock to campus to like talk about the movies and stuff. And like, that's how he more or less got the blessing of Alfred Hitchcock to go make it because he was already buddies with him by reclaiming the guy's work. Like he was a true student of like the master of suspense in almost the the most literal sense, you know? And then he goes on to make psycho two 
which I believe is also written by Tom Holland. Tom Holland, yeah. Yeah, who's coming out like pre-Child's Play, pre-Fright Night. Right after Beast Within. Uh, yes, right exactly. At, yeah. And then which also like before one of our personal favorite face melters, Scream for Help. Oh, yeah, dude. dude. Uh, speaking of Michael Winner, you know, one of the most anti-human, weird-ass movies that you'll ever see in your life. But, like, Road Games is fucking awesome because it's just Rear Window written by, you know, Everett DeRoche, who wrote, like, Patrick and was, like, every long ex- weekend. Every, every exploitation exploitation <laughs> movie ever made, basically. He, he wrote The Quest. The Quest. Yeah. Like, but it's very much Rear Window in a big rig with Jamie Lee Hurt- Curtis playing a hitchhiker. And the way that she tells it is that she was just in like Halloween and uh, prom night the fog and terror already, train, yeah. the fog and basically had like either agent or producer call- contact her and be like, Hey, do you want to just like go to Australia and work on this movie? We'll pay you a bunch of money. And like, you're now the big star because everybody knows you from like Halloween and shit. And she's like, of, you know, she's like 20 or 21 years old. And she's like, of course I'll go to fucking Australia. That sounds awesome. And she gets to hang out and shoot a film, a really good thriller with Stacy Keach. And they have like legit chemistry together. Like Stacy Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis together in this movie are so fucking good. It's almost like this film understood better how to do the characters of the fog between um, uh, Tom Atkins and her, who had yeah, no it's chemistry, the same dynamic. But it's like older guy, but Keech, who is like a weird looking dude. But the, when you first meet him, and he has his like dingo dog, and he's just like narrating really, all the different stories of the people who are he's, he's passing so in the big funny. Rig. Yeah, and he has again, he's he's you know Scotty from Rear Window, right? Yeah, and it's very much like a one man show, and like Keech totally owns this movie. He's great in it it's a really terrific gem and you also have at the same time coming out of australia a movie called strange behavior which i quite like <sighs> aka the dead kids yeah you don't like this one no, i like it. it's just weird yeah i yeah. mean it's like but that was the thing that made these ausploitation movies like so good stuff like this dead end drive-in turkey shoot like all the the brian trenchard smith stuff yeah. patrick like they were all kind of kooky like there was an off kilter element to them because they felt like they were being imported from another country that was using this medium to both entertain and also kind of like comment on its weird societal mores, but they're not, a they're using like an American mode of entertainment to comment on like these weird societal issues that we might not totally get as Americans, which gives them a very, I don't know, foreign feel almost, but man, that's a really fun subgenre to dive into, especially if you use uh, not quite Hollywood, the old Mark Hart- Hartley documentary oh, as yeah. your guide. Well, and this one, Strange Behavior, always reminded me of Disturbing Behavior from '98. Yeah, it's very you know, close. It's, it's like you know, very similar idea of of like kind of behavioral control. I'm a big fan of Disturbing Behavior, by the way. It's like a perfect slice of late '90s kind of. Scream era, not slasher, but like is that James Martin, Marsden, and Nick Stahl. Yeah, and and uh, Katie, and Katie Holmes. Holmes has that great um, "Got You Where I Want You" like music by video. the flies. By the flies, I love that song. Dude. Still great to this day, except for the part where it turns into weird white ska like, rap, ska rap '90s alternative reggae. Boop, da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. You're like, I could do without the 311, sir, but the rest of your song's pretty good. <laughs> The movie's also only like 85 minutes, so it's real it's nice. It's tight. Is that Kevin Williamson? 
Uh, no. Um, the right, uh, the director was David Nutter, the TV director. Who did oh, like, I know who, who did is. a lot of X Files and a lot yeah. of Supernatural. He sadly passed away. Um, the writer, I forget, but it's not, it's not Williamson. For some reason I thought it was Williamson, but cause that was back when he, after Scream was basically writing everything. Like I know what you did last summer. And anyway, the faculty, another really oh, good, yeah. maybe the only good Robert Rodriguez movie outside of Desperado and from Dust Till Dawn. Creed. But that's a Tarantino movie. That's also a debate for another time. <laughs> but now we get to the final category of 1981 slashers to really round out this massive list of movies. I really hope you guys brought your notebooks to write all the things we just referenced <laughs> down because you have a basically a year's worth of viewing just from one episode. But you have the 42nd Street Curios is what I dubbed these. A lot of outsider, really weird shit. Bloody Birthday, which is like the killer kid movie with the awesome like key art of like the fucking fingers as as uh, birthday candles yeah. on a cake. Um, you ever seen this one? It's a strange. I, I couldn't one. finish it. It was years ago. My friend, oh, really? my friend bought it for me for my birthday one year. Because it I has that Arrow Blu-ray that's pretty cool. But I like it. But it again, it's a, like a lot of the other stuff on this portion of the list that it's like this is only for the true heads who have seen fucking everything. Yeah, you know, Madhouse is on here. Yeah, Madhouse is another one, which is uh, Olivio uh, Asantes, mm-hmm. who made like Tentacles. Beyond the Door and Tentacles. <laughs> one of my favorites. And it also has killer dogs in it. Like, that's a real fucking weird, strange one. And also Scream, which we kind of already went over. Home Sweet Home. What a movie. Um, the New Mexico, I believe, shot slasher film with Body by Jake. <laughs> As the PCP addicted killer who just mauls everybody. It has a guitar playing mime in it at one point that actually plays with a like power rig attached to his back so he could just walk around this Thanksgiving party. Like everybody says there's no Thanksgiving slashers. There is blood rage in this. There's blood rage in this. And I guess now thanksgiving from eli roth which is coming in like a full like feature length form here soon that's his next project apparently good good Um, for him yeah i mean it's only like (laughs) 20 years too late but i mean what else is eli doing this day these days outside of like hosting history of horror on amc uh and then you have scream which we already talked about home sweet home nightmares in a damaged brain which we talked about now this next one i almost i watched it today and I almost include it in the auteurs category because of who directed it, but it's also debatable whether or not this man, despite his quite prolific body of exploitation work, is actually an auteur. And that's uh, Jess Franco's Bloody Moon, which is really just a Jess Franco sexploitation sort of hangout movie with a bunch of hot girls who take their tops off and get into like makeout sessions. And it's a weird and, one. Yeah. And just happens to have like a burned face killer who's like going around and like stabbing people with scissors. Strange movie. Um, Fun movie. But again, only for like the hardest of hardcore who are into this sort of stuff. Uh, Frightmare, which is actually quite good. And I also saw on a 35 millimeter print way back when at an Zoom show. And I believe Vinegar Syndrome has put this one out. It has like Jeffrey Combs. And Barbara Crampton, and it's all set in like a funeral home. Oh, right. This one's pretty fun. Um, Don't Go in the Woods, which is almost like kind of like just before Dawn's like 
mentally disabled cousin. <laughs> like it's really, it's terrible. Um, Madhouse, which we already mentioned hospital massacre. And then one of your personal favorites, which we covered at length on here, but I still fits in my opinion, fits the curio kind of descriptor is madman is yep. 1981. Yep. Um, really strange, uh, super regional slasher movie. And then uh, absurd, uh, the follow-up to Anthropophagus, Ooh, and it's, it's a rough set. That's it. I like these. No, I movies, like it, but, it's but just, I it's also fun. have a much higher threshold for Euro horror than you do. Uh, yeah, mine's not very, <laughs> very high. No, not at all. But I mean, like, that's it. That's the fucking list of movies that came out this year. Like, it's amazing that looking at it as a whole. It's overwhelming, but when you break it down into these subcategories, it gets a little more interesting, but just the variety of stuff on here that you could have seen if you were a real kind of pervert in 1981, probably living in Times Square, frankly, if you wanted to see all of this shit at once. But, like, you could go one week and see Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, and then you could go, like, the next week and see fucking, you know... A Wes Craven film. Or Friday or 13th Part 2. Road games. Or Friday the 13th Part 2. Like, the the range of, like, bizarre quality setting, you know, and, and talent involved is just, it's wild. Well, and that and that's another reason I like Slashers, is it is this kind of, like, fun sandbox to play in. Yeah. That you could do a lot, you could do a lot with it. And, and even back to the final exam, that even a film that's trying to literally be as mercenary as possible and remake Halloween at a cheaper budget and make money back can't help but have personality. It's these films that were trying to follow a really what they thought was a formula, but still showing that they had things to say. But I mean, to be fair too, that's the whole impetus of the slasher subgenre is that we sit here and everybody credits Halloween and this isn't, a, a, an original thought, nor is it a thought that I haven't voiced on here or in the pages of Fangoria magazine, frankly, is that Halloween might have been like the slasher, you know, the real progenitor for most people. But like Friday the 13th is the true, 100%. like what starts the slasher. They crystallized because it. They, they, yeah, they crystallize it. That's the best way to put it because they're, they were literally, they looked and they admit it in that, that crystal Lake memories documentary and book as they were like the, the, the phone call went Halloween's making a bunch of money. Let's rip it off. And that thus Friday the 13th was born. I just I think that exploitation of any kind, where a film by exploitation I mean like Jaws exploitation, Star Wars exploitation, all of these like you know Halloween exploitation, where it's just the entire Italian genre like film industry from the '60s on. Yeah, I'm just like we saw that worked. We're almost trying to like either reinvent the wheel or like reverse engineer these movies, but also like we're not bringing almost like we're not talented enough to do so with some of these filmmakers. It's great. So like the more inept sometimes the better. It's honestly sort of what it feels like we're about to experience a new sort of boom. You just saw this one the other day and I haven't seen it yet, but it feels like everybody's going to be chasing skin next in that the homemade, almost like YouTube-born, super low-budget kind of like outsider art horror movies. It feels like that's what's going to be chased next. And actually, it might not even be 
Skinnamarink, although that's probably the will be the one that's cited by most people because of its wild success at the box office. But Terrifier and Terrifier 2 are the other ones too, is that these really homemade like outsider movies that kind of came out of nowhere. I think you're going to see, especially in this age when like VOD is king, theaters are dying. You can run a movie like this that was made for like, let's face it, a couple hundred grand, maybe like how much was skin rink? Like 60 grand or some crazy low number. Less than that. said, Yeah. But it's like they could acquire it and then put it in theaters. And even if it makes like one good weekend or a million bucks, it's a massive sensation now. Well, I mean, yeah, I saw I saw Outwaters, you know, as well, which is also following that very, you know, similar thing of, of just very experiential and very experimental. Um, I think the mistake they're making is they're just trying to compare it to Blair Witch or Paranormal Activity when it's not that. I mean, half that's just how they're selling. Yeah. yeah. And I think that it will be once it finds its complete audience, people will be saying, Oh, it's the next Skinnamarink. It's kind of doing something new, which is funny because Skinnamarink came out a month ago. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, and then um, they just, uh, James Wan just signed that YouTube director kid, to make a, a right. feature based on his YouTube series. So like that weird, like killer robot. The, yeah. The killer robot in the office, um, yeah. which they're actually really great. Um, well, I've never seen them there. We'll also, I'll send you some. They're really cool. Um, but the fact that James Wan is also seeing the kind of writing on the wall of like, it's almost like when, um, J- when Jason Blum signed the gallows kids, right. They had a very similar thing of like, I think they had YouTube, you know, cred or they had done a short film and it was like, Ooh, the, the next young generation uh, of filmmakers. Um, but this is also where the culture is moving, and this is a, a conversation for, frankly, another podcast, but it's like how, like, TikTok, TikTok is eclipsing, you know, Twitter and Facebook. YouTube is now a stomping ground for people to actually make, like, creative outsider art and yep. stuff. Like, it's just where people's, and frankly, young, people much younger than us, it's where their attention span is headed. So, of course, it's going to give birth to the next like wave of horror. Why yeah. wouldn't it? No. And it, and I'm excited. I mean, like this has been a good year so far with even Megan, which amazing is amazing fucking year. Just been a really great year. And, and we both saw knock at the cabin and, and you know, Shyamalan's back baby. Like it's an exciting time for genre. It's an exciting time for horror. Well, kind of like what we just said about the list here too, is that we're, it's only February and we've had stuff that's as diverse as Skinamarink to Megan, you know, things on total opposite sides of the spectrum. Next we get like, yo, we're getting infinity pool from fucking Brandon Cronenberg. And we're also going to get cocaine bear in a couple weeks. Like it's pretty nuts and knock at the cabin. I mean, don't want to go into it too hard because we might have an episode coming up for you guys, but like knock at the cabin is like Shyamalan in pure horror mode for the first time in forever. And it's amazing. It, it, I I ran out of the theater buzzing. I was so yeah. fucking excited. I was but crying. Like, the ending of that movie is so fucking powerful. Anyway, yeah. you want to get to questions let's, about My Bloody Valentine? Let's do it. All right. <laughs> Once upon a time, on a sad valentine, in a place known as Hanigar Mine, a legend began... Every woman and man would always remember the time And those who remained were never the same You could see the fear in their eyes Once every year 
As the 14th draws near There's a hush all over the town While the legend they say On a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know As the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago Questions about My Bloody Valentine and the 1981 class of slashers. Martin, top three from this class. Go. Um, number three. I'm going to go up to one. Uh, Friday 13, part two. That's uh, mine, too. Um, is my third. Um, yep. I love that movie. Um, it's my probably my favorite Friday 13th next to part four. Um, I just think it's like I love uh, Sackhead Jason. I love... I like the characters. I like Jenny. I like uh, I like a lot of the kills. Some of my favorite kills in any Friday Thirteenth movie. I love the setting of like the counselors and training, like camp. Uh, and I think Steve Miner is a better director than Sean S. Cunningham. So it's actually a pretty well put together movie. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I'm not saying anything <laughs> too crazy. Speaking of which. I, I watched uh, Lake Placid for oh, the first time recently, and I saw the trailer for Cocaine Bear uh, before Knock oh. at the Cabin today, and I started thinking about how Cocaine Bear might be like this generation's Lake Placid. Anyway, Mike Myers' voice, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> What's uh, number two? Number two is Final Exam. Um, Boo. Uh, again, I already explained my love of it, my nostalgic love of it. I understand it's not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, not the best deaths, but it is a slasher that I love. Um, number one is my bloody Valentine. I mean, yeah. uh, it's the whole point of this episode. Uh, it's again, th- I mean, if, if one film also really crystallizes all of the crystallizes the formula of what a slasher is, this is one of them. But it also does the thing, and it does it well. Like the kills are great. It just the characters are great. It's shot well. Great music. Um, great texture, as you would say, with the miners and the working class. Um, also from Paramount, and it's and it's a Paramount film. So this also was a rush job that uh, uh, Mahalka, the filmmaker, they're like, "Hey, so this is going to come out in June." And it was like January, and they had to like write, cast, shoot, and edit, and be in theaters in like six months. And didn't they shoot it in a real mine? Mm-hmm. Like they scouted the town and everything, and it was supposed to be like a. I think it was a shut down mine, but he liked it because it had all this dirt and grit about it. But then the town found out that they were going to shoot a movie there and like clean the whole thing up. So it ended up looking like a set anyway. <laughs> it's a, it looks amazing though. I mean, it, the film, it's gorgeous. I it love... looks so cold. It's so fucking Canadian. Yeah, it's I mean, almost it, like a Cronenberg movie. Oh, seriously. It looks like dead zone. I mean, like all yeah. the, all the shit, like, or, the or, or, or like, uh, the brood of like of walking up to, yeah. uh, to Raglan's Institute. Yeah. It's really, really fucking cool. So my number three is the the same as yours, Friday the 13th part two. I mean, there are days where I wonder if Friday the 13th part two uh, is the best Friday as we've kind of already covered on our, our previous uh, Friday the 13th episode with Brandon. Um, the kills are great. You know, the, the, the wheelchair guy is great. The, the, the romance has some of the hottest women oh my of all God. time. The spear death. Like it's just, Again, like you said, it, it crystallizes the slasher in a way that we knew, like, we were kind of off to the races with this subgenre. Yeah. Like, and anything kind of went in a very, almost pornographic 
sense. Oh, yeah. Which would then be fully realized by the time we get to uh, Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning, which was literally shot by an ex-porn director. What a movie. Number two is Night Warning. Um, we kind of brushed over this in, in the uh, first part of our episode. Um, and again, you can read that article f- uh, from Preston on the site. But like Night Warning is one of the most deranged motion pictures I've ever seen. Um, it stars Susan Tyrell in like a hair on fire, totally out of her mind performance. Not that Susan Tyrell really gave anything else. I guess maybe like <laughs> Fat City. She's pretty crazy. Yeah, in she's that pretty too. out of her mind in that. Angel is the other one that I think about. But like she was always reliably baddie, you know, and and. This is the greatest example of that because she plays an overbearing aunt on young Billy, who is a uh, very good looking basketball player who may or may not be wrestling with his burgeoning gay or bisexual uh, identity. Um, Ends up as Billy gets into multiple affairs, uh, she gets more and more heated, we'll say. Uh, ends up killing a guy in, in the throes of passion and then being investigated by motherfucking Bo Spenson looking like a Swedish slab of bacon carrying the biggest revolver you've ever seen in your life and saying the most homophobic shit at, like that's ever been uttered by one character. This is like... Like, one of the cool things about this movie is that it feels like Bo Svensson is playing, like, the bizarro, dark dimension, like, horrible version of Buford T. Pusser, which he would do, Mm. he would famously play in in Walking Tall Part 2, but he's playing, like, the bad version of that character who's just going in, uh, like, harasses, like, Billy's, you know, gym coach who's, like, an openly gay man, you know, calls Billy every horrible slur in the book. Like, it's... It's shocking to watch. It's a shocking, fucked-up movie. Now, imagine watching that movie at 9 o'clock... As you've you've gone to the exhumed marathon now. Now imagine the nine o'clock block where you're like five. No, no, no. Oh, okay. PM, where you're like five movies deep. You're really rolling. You've had a beer or two, so like you're kind of you're buzzing. And then they throw that on in a packed ass theater. And then re- think about how that fucking like crowd reacted to that movie. Like the first time Bo Svensson fin- goes on one of his crazy gay panic interrogations you could just hear the whole crowd's like asshole collectively pucker to where you're like oh what the fuck and then you get to that totally off kilter and out of its mind last 20 minutes where susan tyrell's like shaving her head and waving a machete around that movie fucking rules that's another one that like i would show to a crowd when we get towards like fall and like fucking like halloween time it's with and, the and, right and when we know people, our audience. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that's the other thing is let's there's a maybe not the crowd who gets easily offended. Yeah, exactly. And then number one's My Bloody Valentine. Like, it's just that again, there's times where I wonder if it's the best slasher movie of all time. It's pure in a way that I don't think many of these movies are. And especially if you have like a true love for slasher cinema, you you watch this and it just hits all the right beats. You it's know? slick too. It looks it's, great. Yeah, the kills are awesome. The hearts in the box are fucking great. Like it just, it's so 
satisfying and the fact that I've seen it like probably 20 times or so and I just threw it on a little drunk like late the other night and like stayed up all night and kind of watched it and it just flew by because even though I knew every beat I was like oh my god I just like hanging out with this movie like it's really good did I ever tell you as remembering that my buddy Valentine's the reason that I broke up with somebody in grad school no um I was I was dating this this woman who was not good for me and I brought this over and she'd never seen it and we're watching it. And there's a scene where after the, the girl's killed in the shower room and her boyfriend finds her and he's like bawling, crying. And I am like dying laughing. I am laughing. He's just like blubbering. And she got legitimately mad at me that she's like, that's so offensive. Like we're watching my buddy Valentine. Like calm the fuck down. And we we ended up kind of breaking up. So, but I, I think it was the right choice. And I, I, Appreciate my buddy Valentine helped get me out of a bad situation. <laughs> Another win for Slasher Cinema. Yep. <laughs> so, double feature. So, I'm doing a weird one. Um, I'd expect nothing less. I'm going to pair my buddy Valentine with Harlan County, USA. I'm going to do a minor movie about minors. And I'm if I were going to do a triple feature, then I would do John Sales, Matawan. And I would just do a... a I love... Real. Real spectrum like running that you're doing, but right there. but I really love. I've on. I'm honestly like obsessed with unions and like union history and minors. So like, I've seen Harlan County like 15 times. My favorite documentary, Barbara Copples is genius. Is it Matter One like three fucking hours long? It's two and a half. Something oh like okay, that. dude. I I love that movie. It's like that's my favorite John. No, Sills it's just film. great. You're just you're describing like eight hours of movie right now, and uh, one of them is a slasher. Oh, I love it though because I mean, but my buddy Valentine has some great like kind of time in the mind and like the kind of working class living and I'm in that headspace. I was like, I'm like, I'm not going to pair with another slasher. We spent hours talking about slashers. I wanted to think of something a little bit off the, the beaten path, but um, Harlan County is one of my favorite movies as is uh matter one. So I'm going to, for the minors, Harry Warden to uh, for the, the, the strike for the true blue collar Joe. Exactly. I was also going to do blue collar by Paul Schrader, but it's just going too heavy. Oh, with Jesus it. God. So, <laughs> How Talk about, about a depressing night. <laughs> oh, that's in a real I know, dude. How about you? I I'm stuck because there's one obvious one, and that's Valentine with David Boreanz. Yep. Um, one of the great that's a weird kind of one. early two thousands slashers, kind of in that same period of time, like post Scream, and really you want to talk about on the tail end of like a a different wave of slashers that like starts with scream and is kind of petering out at this point. Cause I believe this is 2001 or 2002. It's 2001. And it's, it's the guy who did uh urban legend. Yeah. Same Jamie blanks, right? Yeah. Same, the Australian yeah. guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Storm warning. Great Storm one too. Warning, is, which up. is also quite good. Um, but yeah, I, I like this movie a lot. It's got some solid kills. It's mean. It has that CW feel that I kind of like. And, I don't know. It's pretty decent. My my alternative here uh, was Cherry Falls. Oh, I love Murphy, that movie. Where it inverts the slashers. Because what I was thinking about is that, like, since as we're talking through My Bloody Valentine, this is, like, one of the purest crystallizations of the slasher movie, the rules, and it comes from the true, like, golden era of, of that subgenre. I was thinking about a movie that subverts those rules and cherry falls does it with the very premise is that instead of like P 
people, you know, uh, fucking and then getting killed. It's literally people have to fuck in order to survive because the killer's, the killer's knocking off virgins, taking their cherries. Um, and Brittany Murphy's great in this. Jay Moore, surprisingly really good in it. Um, it's just a gnarly, weird little movie that also, like My Bloody Valentine, had some uh, problems with the censors because it was given an NC-17 or X rating when it was first submitted because of the big like orgy sequence at the end. They yeah. had to cut a bunch out. I believe it's all been restored and it's on that Scream Factory. Is Blu-ray. that out yet? Yeah. Okay, I want to get that. I heard that. I mean, I I just watched it recently before that. So yeah, it's a fun movie. Absolutely. Um, it's a weird one too, and that again, Michael the, Bean as well. Michael Bean also yeah. in it might be one only for the heads. I'm not really sure, but like it has enough star power behind it with you know, especially with the tragically passed mm. uh, Brittany Murphy. Um, and Michael Bean and like even Jay Moore, I feel like you could sell and be like, it's weird. This fucking comedians in it too. And anyway, good ass movie. Cherry Falls. If you've never seen it, the killer kind of reminds me of the design of the killer malignant as well. The kind of look that yep. stringy hair. There's like definitely some stuff. It's gnarly. Some stuff there. Um, all right. Remake. Well, I wanted to set this portion aside because we could hit on the actual remake of My Bloody Valentine, which is My Bloody Valentine 3D, which was 2009. 2009, yeah. Um, directed by Patrick Lussier, uh, written by Todd Farmer uh, of Jason X fame, um, and Patrick Lussier, who spent a lot of his formative time editing Wes Craven movies. Like, he edited Scream. Yes, he did. Um, he made Drive Angry, which I like a lot. Made Drive Angry, which is quite good. Jason X, again, he worked on with, with Todd Farmer. Although, that's... Um, I'm trying to remember the director's yeah, name. Yeah, it's there. not. It was the guy who made the horror show. Yeah. Um, anyway, but uh, they had worked together, and then they make this... It's weird. The thing about this movie that I really fucking liked, because we actually watched it uh, during one of the things that delayed us uh, recording an episode for a little, a couple weeks, is that we had all that ice storm and like blackouts here in Austin, and we ended up watching it at your apartment after my house uh, lost power, and I was just coming over here and hanging out. We just got a bottle of whiskey and hung out in the cold <laughs> while all the trees in Austin fell down and took all the power lines with them. Almost crushed your car. Almost crushed my car. Almost crushed your living room. Yep. It was a real weird time that we lived through, but we made time for My Bloody Valentine 3D, which, despite being shot like a telenovela, um, is real fucking fun and strangely not very tongue-in-cheek. It's much more of a straightforward, no-irony kind of slasher, and I really admired it for it because it also embraced the trashiness of of doing a, a modern slasher kind of remake. It really embraces the gimmick in a way that hasn't been done since you know Friday the 13th Part 3D, the nudity... Um, that whole like naked chase sequence at the motel is where, <laughs> including Todd Farmer. Um, and then like, oh, he kills the the little person. Yeah. He just like shoves. It's insane. It's fucking, it's, it embraces the mean spirited kind of tone of the movie, but also understood that the original was mean-spirited and fun at the same time. It was like, we're going to kill a midget, but at the same time, we're going to make it funny. Like, it's totally insensitive, but 
whatever. Um, but also it, in a way that I'd never considered before and hadn't until you actually said it about 30 or so minutes ago is that one of the great things about My Bloody Valentine, the original we've already hit on, is the the characters and the drama. And it almost seems tailor-made to be updated with a bunch of like XCW, yep. Dawson's Creek, Supernatural-type actors with you have... Um, Jared, Jared uh, Jensen Ackles. You have Jensen Ackles. You have Jack from fucking Dawson's Creek. You have Jamie uh, King as yep. the one girl. And it's just, it feels like a slasher stumbled into like a CW show. And it really plays with the love triangle and everything. The women are hot as fuck in it. And the gore is plentiful. And then you have Tom Atkins as the local sheriff. Like, it's kind of perfect. Yeah, the only problem with it, like you said, the way it's shot is it was shot for 3D. So everything. And it's that early digital. Everything is lit. So there's like no contrast anywhere. It's just these like evenly lit scenes. It looks like motion smoothing is on your TV the whole time. Yeah, they're weirdly framed too because they frame it differently for 3D to kind of. And it's just like all everything feels like an inch off. Um, But that being said, a really fun remake. And it was interesting because it was months away from the remake of, or a month away from the remake of uh, Friday 13th. And you have Jared Padalecki in that one. So you got both Supernatural Boys yeah. in these. Re- that's another great fucking remake. So definitely a good year. And by the time Tom Atkins' jaw is flung at you in 3D, even if you don't have the glasses on, it still fucking rules. It's a good time. So final question. Face melter, yay, nay, do we care? I'm going to let you go first. No, I don't think so. I think it's just a solid fucking comfort slasher that was the epitome of the, the subgenre boom in the early 80s and everything that we've already covered, but that doesn't make it a, a, a face melter per se. It just makes it important. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, everyone I've shown this to who I – like our horror fans love it. Like, so it's like not a face melt in respect. You could put this on and everyone shuts up like, Oh my God, this is absolutely insane. But definitely like, if you like horror and you haven't seen it, like you're going to like this fucking movie. Like if you have any inkling of love for a slasher, you're going to get it with the, my bloody Valentine. Yeah. It's just, it really is meat and potatoes. What you love the genre for. Yeah. Like if you're into it, you're going to love this movie. Well, Martin, we've knocked out another 90 minutes on slashers. We might just have to rename Secret Handshake <laughs> something like Dead Teenager Radio. <laughs> I don't know. But um, what do we got next for him? Well, next up, we, we mentioned it earlier, uh, but a, a great filmmaker from the past who's now back in good form, uh, M. Night. So really excited to be popping back into some of his classics and some of his not so classics. Uh, but to talk about the I kind refuse of, to rewatch the last Airbender. I'm just letting everyone know up front. I'm not sitting for I'll, that I'll, shit. I'll skip that too. Maybe After Earth though, because there is a weird contingent of After Earth defenders. But I guess we got to save all yes. that bullshit for next <laughs> week uh, when you tune in again to Secret Handshake. See you then. See you next time. <laughs> Thank you.